can everybody hear me all right? If you can't, just stick your hand up. Um, I'd like to, to thank the organisers very much for inviting me to come and talk. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here, and it's a great honour to be on this opening panel, especially with two such other fantastic scholars and activists. Um, I'd, I'd like to start with a couple of snapshots, literally snapshots, photos that I've taken over the past year. Um, this first photograph I took in my friend Anna's kitchen. Um, Anna is a former neighbour of mine, and she works part-time as a teacher, a secondary school teacher. And I was really struck when we were in her kitchen, and I, you, can't, you really can't see that very well, actually. Apologies, because um, the... It's not coming up very well on the PowerPoint. But on, in her kitchen, on a blackboard, she has um, a patchwork of childcare that goes over two weeks. Um, because although she works part-time, three days a week, um, the school has given her a timetable, so she has to have childcare in place on five days of the week. So she has this very complicated mixture of herself, of a childminder, of after-school club. Um, and she's put up this lovely thing in coloured chalks on her blackboard to explain to her children what's happening on what day over the course of this two-week cycle. I was really struck by both the complexity of the arrangements, by the amount of work that she had had to put in to put those arrangements in place, and then the further work in explaining them and in making them attractive and, and palatable to her children. Um, and it's also worth saying that Anna's husband is also a teacher, but because he has a management role, he's not available for any of this before and after school care. Um, and when I said to her, oh, can I take a picture of that? Because that just seems to me to sum up you know, everything that, that we're thinking about here. Um, she, very uncharacteristically, her eyes filled with tears um, because I think it really just sort of brought home to her you know, how much work this all was. Um, then a mile down the road from Anna's house, um, this is a snapshot, which perhaps you can see a little bit better, um, from a course I did at an organisation called Single Parent Action Network. And we did a seven-week course there on the history of work. Um, Single Parent Action Network is based in Lawrence Hill, which is one of the most deprived wards in the southwest of, it, of England. Um, it's got 55% BME population, 28% of people who live in Lawrence Hill have English as an additional language, and 25% are on out-of-work benefits. And the clientele at Single Parent Action Network reflects um, the, the population. Um, and in the first session of our course, we had a very interesting discussion around the word work and its meanings to this group of people. And you can see some of the things that we talked about on, the, on this slide. Um, what came through very, very clearly and what the women talked about very eloquently was both their desire to work um, and society's expectation that they would take up paid work, um, but also the barriers that there were to the to paid work. Um, so they talked about childcare, they talked about health issues, competition for the jobs that were available, um, and they also talked about the unpleasant nature of much of the work that was available to them. Um, you can probably see here um, in, in the, the bottom right hand corner, somebody said, work's a dirty word, and then somebody else said, work's not what it used to be. 
Um, and another really key theme that emerged in our discussions was work and health. Um, so the ways in which work could improve your health, particularly your mental health, um, but also that work could, could damage your health. So the women from Span and Anna um, clearly are in very different socioeconomic circumstances and in some cases also have different ethnic backgrounds. And I think they face quite different challenges in the labour market. Um, but there were also a number of things that they had in common. Um, first of all, their limited availability for paid work. Secondly, the restricted childcare options and quite expensive childcare options. Um, and thirdly, their responsibility for the practical and emotional burden of balancing paid and unpaid work really rested on their shoulders rather than the, the, the men in their lives. Thinking now about the original Working Women's Charter. Um, when the original charter was written, it was a time of very rapid and visible change in women's work. Um, more women were returning to the workforce after having children. Women were entering new professions and new occupations. And I think it's fair to say that women were really at the vanguard of a changing economy in the 1970s. And these structural changes were accompanied by intensive campaigning to improve the lot of working women, um, involving activists from trade unions, from community groups, and from the women's movement. And I think their demands, particularly of equal pay, equal prospects, and better childcare, clearly remain highly relevant today. Um, as, as, as Lucy has already touched upon, um, 40 years on from the Charter, women are still responsible for the second shift of childcare and housework or still primarily responsible for that. Um, women in the workforce struggle to com combine their paid and their unpaid commitments. And for other women, the practicalities of finding and paying for childcare offer a barrier to taking up paid work at all. Um, so partly to address these questions, um, with a number of other scholars, um, I have set up a network called Women, Work and Value in Europe, 1945 to 2015. And our network asks why these problems have remained so persistent. This is an interdisciplinary network, um, so I'm a historian, but we also have involvement by geographers, economists, sociologists, ethnographers, people from film studies and literature. Um, and we're also actively working with groups outside academia um, to explore the practical implications of our findings. So please explore our website, get in touch, grab me afterwards if you'd like to be involved. Um, and what I thought I would do for the rest of the time available to me is just touch on four key themes that have emerged from our discussions so far that I think are quite relevant to our discussions about both the, um, the original charter and writing a new one. Um, so the first theme is the persistent and systemic undervaluation of women's work, both paid work and unpaid work. Women's work has been and remains underpaid or completely unpaid and often uncounted. 
And this has had a number of really significant implications. Um, probably nobody in this room will need reminding of the persistence of the gender pay gap, and I'm sure this is something that we will be talking about in, in the course of the day. Um, another very significant theme in our network discussions has been the undervaluing of care work. The ways in which childcare and elderly care are seen as a labour of love, drawing on an inherently feminine caring instinct. Um, this has implications for negotiations within the family, um, but it also has a knock-on effect for how it's valued on the labour market. So paid care work is often carried out for low wages and under very poor conditions, often by poor or migrant women. Unpaid work is also invisible in economic terms. So we fail to recognize the contribution that unpaid work and reproductive labor make to the economy. And in some countries, they've introduced a satellite system of national accounting that attempts to estimate the economic value of unpaid work for, for economic growth. And it generally comes out at about 30% of GDP. And finally, um, we see the slow progress of women into senior roles. So that's our first theme, the undervaluing of women's work, both in the labor market and outside it. The second thing that's emerged is that historically, shifts in discourse have been quicker to happen and have been stronger than shifts in practice. So another way of putting that is there's a gap between what people say and what they do. Um, so something that has come out from a number of papers that have been presented to us is that while patriarchal beliefs, or at least the expression of patriarchal beliefs, went out of fashion relatively quickly, patriarchal behavior persisted. Um, another example of that is that it's quite common to have couples, cohabiting or married couples, where both partners would strongly and genuinely express a belief in an egalitarian distribution of unpaid work within the home, but actually would have quite a traditional distribution of labor in practice. So it seems it's easier to change attitudes than it is to change behavior. And I think we need to distinguish between the two. Simply because people are making the right noises, that doesn't necessarily um, translate into change. Um, so this is true in the home. It's also true in the workplace. And I think that there is now a very significant body of work on implicit bias and the ways that works against women and other marginalized groups. Um, we now know a lot more about how recruitment and promotion practices, which are seen as impartial and are often brought in in a very well-meaning way, um, can actually actively disadvantage women and other underrepresented groups. So I think we really need to take that on board to understand these processes of, um, of implicit bias and to build in ways of, of countering them. The third theme is what one of our members called the implosion of the private and the public. This is something that, that, that she used in a paper on her own research, but we soon realized it was something that could also apply to almost every case study that we were discussing. And I think this implosion makes itself seen in three ways. The first is 
are the pressures of paid and unpaid work, very nicely um, depicted here in this poster from the Sea Red Women's Workshop. Um, women's work is still seen as secondary and additional, um, and this has this puts women in partnerships at a disadvantage, um, but it also has very serious implications for female-headed households, both in terms of pay and also in terms of um, the, the, the quantity of work that they are required to do. Um, secondly, there's, there has been over this period, and there still is, very intense public scrutiny of women's work and of their domestic arrangements. Um, it's not hard to think of examples from the present day in the way in which motherhood is still being presented as, as one of our participants put it, women's unpaid destiny. Um, and this affects women without children too. We had a very interesting paper on the life histories of childless single women and um, the, the, this other researcher had interviewed them, and she said they were always at pains to say, I did not choose my job over marriage and children. So even though they hadn't got married, they were very anxious that people might, might perceive that they had chosen to participate in the workforce rather than participating in the domestic sphere. Uh, and thirdly, as a response to these pressures, women tend to retreat into the private sphere. This can take the form of leaving paid work, of going part-time, or of going freelance. Um, and while this provides some temporary relief from the patriarchal structures of the workplace, it also leads to a reprivatization of women's work. How am I doing for time, Lucy? Perfect. Thank you. Um, the final point is about what somebody called local regimes of gender. And what I mean by this is when you look at the empirical case studies that our members are doing, um, it's very clear that there are shared concerns, but also that women's experience has a very great particularity to it. Um, so gender is a decisive force in shaping women's experiences of work, um, but equally important is the way that gender intersects with age, class, ethnicity, region, and occupation. So going back to my two opening snapshots, um, we can see how for Anna and Span and the women from Span, there are some shared areas of concern. There are some things that would help both of them, not least the availability of affordable childcare. But there are also ways in which their experiences are very different and the challenges that are facing them are very different. Um, in a way, this is a, a very obvious point, um, but I think as we think about a new charter, I think we need to think about ways in which these, these different local regimes of gender play out and create different needs and different requirements. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Um, thank you very much for your attention. I feel like I've raised more questions than um, given answers, but perhaps that's fitting for the first paper of the day. Thank you.